Hello and welcome to Let's Be Better, a podcast where we have the hard conversations about politics, minority communities, and our world at large. I'm Hannah and today is Saturday, September 19th of 2020. This week in review, we will be covering the United States' TikTok ban, Trump's 1776 commission, and the whistleblower complaints against the Georgia ICE Detention Center. Then after that, we have the question of the week, which is, why do we have the Electoral College? Thank you for joining me. So for this week's first story, we're going to talk about the executive order banning TikTok in the United States why Donald Trump wants to ban it, and how is it different from other apps that we use every day. So for starters, why are Donald Trump and others critical of TikTok in the first place? Well, TikTok is a Chinese-owned company. Many people are concerned about China in general, and also the terms and conditions, and are worried that TikTok will give user information to the Chinese government and then use that information against the American people. According to TikTok's privacy policy, they can access messages that you send on the app, your location if you allow them, your contacts if you allow them, your device information like your IP address, the model of your device, your mobile carrier, things like that. Chief Technology Officer of a privacy company called Disconnect, Patrick Johnson, claims that, quote, it doesn't appear that TikTok takes any more data than Facebook, but they do take measures to hide what they are collecting. Now, if these things are alarming, I have some news for you. Every website you go to, every tab you open, every social media site that you sign up for takes these same data points. Many sell these statistics to various companies and then use that information to target you with ads that are more appealing to your demographic. But what about them selling information to China and the Chinese government? Well, according to TikTok, none of your data from the app is even stored in China, only in the USA and Singapore. Patrick Johnson, who I mentioned earlier, and a columnist for the Washington Post decided to test out this theory that your information is being sent to Chinese websites, and here's what they found. We watched data flow out of the app and did not see any headed to addresses that were clearly based in China. Most went to cloud services such as Amazon Web Services. But it's possible and likely that data transmitted to these servers are transferred to other locations, but it's not verified from our end, Jackson said. He also found several references in the app to internet addresses based in China or registered there, though saw no traffic going to them. I do want to point out that TikTok has had some shady business dealings in the past. App developer MySick uncovered my sick, I guess is how you say it, uncovered that TikTok was able to view your iPhone clipboard every few seconds as long as you had the app running in the background. But since then, TikTok has claimed that this was only an anti-spam measure and later updated the app to exclude this feature. Furthermore, TikTok was also under fire after buying the app Musical.ly, which had been taking data from children under the age of 13, which is in violation of the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. They later updated the parental controls and then paid a hefty fine because of it. I also want to point out that India has banned TikTok as well, but also 60 other Chinese-owned apps. But this comes after a border dispute between China and India, which left 20 Indian soldiers and an undisclosed amount of Chinese soldiers dead. India made up a third of TikTok's user base, so banning it in India would be a huge blow to China. The Indian government also cited the same security concerns as well, 
but in my personal opinion, it seems more like it's a dig at China rather than issues over privacy concerns for one app. So if all of these issues have been addressed and TikTok isn't selling our information to the Chinese government, why does Donald Trump want to ban it? Well, because on June 21st of 2020, Donald Trump had a rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where more than 1 million tickets were requested. The campaign had planned an overflow section and everything like that, only to have around 6,200 people in attendance, which is still an abysmal number to have at all during a pandemic. But as it turns out, all of those RSVP tickets were a prank. Thousands of TikTok teens had RSVP'd to the event and then just didn't show up. It was only after this event that Donald Trump and his administration started mentioning TikTok and the other Chinese-owned apps as cause for concern. Donald Trump said in July, We're looking at TikTok. We may be banning TikTok. We'll see what happens, but we're looking at a lot of alternatives with respect to TikTok. And I want to point out that TikTok has been around in the United States since 2017. But again, Donald Trump only had an issue with it after June 21st of 2020. I'm also talking about it this week because tomorrow on Sunday the 20th, WeChat, which is owned by the same parent company that owns TikTok, will be completely shut down in the United States and TikTok will no longer be downloadable on app stores. American users will still be able to use TikTok until November 12th, just with no updates. We'll see what happens after that date. So now for opinion time. Trump is just throwing a tantrum about his rally having embarrassingly low numbers. TikTok is no different than any other website or social media. If you don't like it and you don't like that information being, you know, distributed, you don't have to use the app. You can also change your privacy settings. There a lot of things are automatically, you know, set to collect certain aspects of data, but you can either turn them off in your phone's settings or in the app settings themselves. I don't, I also don't know why we're worried about China hypothetically gaining access to information from TikTok users when data breaches happen all the time in the United States. For example, in 2017, Chinese nationals with ties to the Chinese military breached the data of 145 million Americans through Equifax. Keep in mind, this isn't the same data as, you know, TikTok is gathering, like what kind of phone you have or how much screen time you're using, but rather your home address, your phone number, your date of birth, social security number, driver's license number, and credit card numbers. But, you know, Donald Trump didn't want to ban Equifax from the United States. And I think you can probably put two and two together here and figure out why. The next thing I want to discuss this week is Trump's National Commission for Patriotic Education. I have a lot of things that I want to say about this and this speech, so I think it's best that we just listen to it together and I'll talk more in depth about each point as we get there. These radicals have been aided and abetted by liberal politicians, establishment media, and even large corporations. Whether it is the mob on the street or the cancel culture in the boardroom, the goal is the same, to silence dissent, to scare you out of speaking the truth, and to bully Americans into abandoning their values, their heritage, and their very way of life. We are here today to declare that we will never submit to tyranny, 
We will reclaim our history and our country for citizens of every race, color, religion, and creed. The radicals burning American flags want to burn down the principles enshrined in our founding documents, including the bedrock principle of equal justice under law in order to radically transform America. They must first cause Americans to lose confidence in who we are, where we came from, and what we believe. As I said at Mount Rushmore, which they would love to rip down and rip it down fast, that's never going to happen. Two months ago, the left-wing cultural revolution is designed to overthrow the American Revolution. As many of you testified today, the left-wing rioting and mayhem are the direct result of decades of left-wing indoctrination in our schools. It's gone on far too long. Our children are instructed from propaganda tracks, like those of Howard Zinn, that try to make students ashamed of their own history. The left has warped, distorted, and defiled the American story with deceptions, falsehoods, and lies. There is no better example than the New York Times totally discredited 1619 Project. This project rewrites American history to teach our children that we were founded on the principle of oppression, not freedom. Nothing could be further from the truth. America's founding set in motion the unstoppable chain of events that abolished slavery, secured civil rights, defeated communism and fascism, and built the most fair, equal, and prosperous nation in human history. Does he know that we only had to abolish slavery and secure civil rights because we had instituted them in the first place? Does he understand that? The narratives about America being pushed by the far left and being chanted in the streets bear a striking resemblance to the anti-American propaganda of our adversaries because both groups want to see America weakened derided, and totally diminished. I'm really appalled of how deliberately he is attacking the left and equating liberal beliefs with those of our enemies. Donald Trump is saying that American citizens who don't agree with him are the enemy of our entire country. It's profound and frankly disgusting. Also, I want to take this time to point out uh, in this, I read a Newsweek article where political scientists from Harvard University, professors Stephen Levitsky and David Zablat, discuss the criteria for an authoritarian leader. They say the four markers of an authoritarian leader are 1. Rejecting or showing weak commitment to democratic rules 2. Denying the legitimacy of political opponents Just let that sink in. 3. Encouraging or tolerating violence and four, a readiness to stifle or limit civil liberties of opponents, including media. So just, you know, keep those things in the back of your head 
as Donald Trump's uh, first term and hopefully last term kind of finish out. Students in our universities are inundated with critical race theory. This is a Marxist doctrine. I don't know too much about uh, critical race theory, so I decided to look it up. And according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, instead of drawing theories of a social organization and individual behavior from congenital European thinkers such as G.W.F. Hengel, Karl Marx, and Sigmund Freud, CRT, or the critical race theory, was inspired by figures such as MLK Jr., Malcolm X, the Black Panthers, and Frantz Fanon. So he's literally lying to your face, just, just so you know. Holding that America is a wicked and racist nation, that even young children are complicit in oppression, and that our entire society must be radically transformed. Critical race theory is being forced into our children's schools. It's being imposed into workplace trainings. And it's being deployed to rip apart friends, neighbors, and families. A perfect example of critical race theory was recently published by the Smithsonian Institution. This document alleged that Concepts such as hard work, rational thinking, and the nuclear family and belief in God were not values that unite all Americans, but were instead aspects of whiteness. This is offensive and outrageous to Americans of every ethnicity, and it's especially harmful to children of minority backgrounds who should be uplifted, not disparaged. So, according to this article, quote, white dominant culture or whiteness refers to ways which white people and their traditions, attitudes, and ways of life have been normalized over time and are now considered standard practices in the United States. And since white people hold most of the institutional power in America, we all have internalized some aspects of white culture, including some people of color. Ideas like hard work is the key to excess, work before play, and if you didn't meet your goals, you didn't work hard enough, which are mentioned in the article, are Eurocentric ideas. I mean, it's also just like plain capitalism. According to the Business Insider, employees in America work longer, take fewer vacations, and socialize less on the job compared to other countries. Americans work on average 47 hours a week. In Germany and Sweden, they work 35 hours a week. In France, Spain, and Greece, for example, lunch breaks also can last an hour or more and are rarely taken place in front of computer screens. And also, I want to point out that this like infographic from the Smithsonian isn't saying that these are bad things or bad ideals, just that they are Western and white ideals. So I don't really know why he's getting so defensive about this. Also, to his point on the nuclear family, the nuclear family is a white concept in the United States. There are so many different types of family units. One example is the extended family, where parents, children, grandparents, and other relatives all live together. These families provide care for the elderly and young. In India, extended families often include more than one couple, and they share finances in a common kitchen. Clans are another type of family unit. 
Typically, people in clans are all forms of some sort of extended family with a common relative. These are also sometimes called tribes and are an important part of life in Central Asia and Kyrgyzstan. In Nigeria, a patriarchal family is traditional, where a father or eldest male runs the household. In southwestern China, the Mosuo people live in matriarchal families where the mother or the most senior woman is in charge of the household and the finances. It's so privileged to think that the nuclear family is the only way and to be insulted that it's a white way. Again, there are many advantages to a nuclear family. A small family is easier to take care of financially. Nuclear families lean more towards children's eventual independence, and having a mother and a father, or at least two parents, can be beneficial in a lot of ways. But it's not the only way. The last part of this egregious statement is him being insulted that believing in God is whiteness. I mean, duh. Have you ever taken a world religions class? Did you not learn about the Crusades or colonization? Like, do I really need to list every religion in the world that doesn't involve white people? Because I'll tell you right now, they don't all involve our Christian God. Teaching this horrible doctrine to our children is a form of child abuse in the truest sense of those words. So I'm going to stop him right here. The definition of child abuse in federal law is any recent act or failure to act on the part of a parent or caretaker, which results in death, serious physical or emotional harm, sexual abuse or exploitation, or an act or failure to act, which presents an imminent risk of serious harm. Saying that teaching children about the origins of slavery in the United States is child abuse is an insult to every child who has died at the hands of their caretakers, to their families, and to the children who have lived through this and now have severe mental trauma. Gabriel Fernandez was not beaten to death for Donald Trump to call educational topics he finds offensive child abuse in the truest sense of the word. This is why people don't take child abuse seriously, because people like the President of the United States of America dismiss actual child abuse and exploitation of children. If you want a better example of child abuse involving Donald Trump, we should maybe look at the accusations of Donald Trump by four women in the, or sorry, teenagers at the time in the 1997 Miss Teen USA beauty pageant, where Donald Trump walked into the dressing rooms while they were changing. In a 2005 interview in regards to Miss USA and Miss Universe pageants, Trump said this quote, well, I'll tell you the funniest thing is that I go backstage before a show and everyone's getting dressed and ready and everything else, and you know, no men are anywhere, and I'm allowed to go in because I'm the owner of the pageant and therefore I'm inspecting it. You know, I'm inspecting and I want to make sure everything is good. You know, the dresses, is everything okay? Is everyone okay? You know, they're all standing there with no clothes. Is everybody okay? And you see these incredible looking women, and so I sort of get away with things like that. But no, I've been very good. I never want to hear Donald Trump open his mouth to speak against child abuse or the exploitation of women and children. Don't forget about his close buddy Jeffrey Epstein, a pedophile and a child sex trafficker. In 2002, Donald Trump told New York Magazine, I've known Jeff for 15 years. Terrific guy. He's a lot of fun to be with. It's even said he likes beautiful women as much as I do, many of them on the younger side. But yeah, 
educating children on the history of slavery and how black people got to this continent in the first place is child abuse. Sure. For many years now, the radicals have mistaken Americans' silence for weakness, but they're wrong. There is no more powerful force than a parent's love for their children. And patriotic moms and dads are going to demand that their children are no longer fed hateful lies about this country. American parents are not going to accept indoctrination in our schools, cancel culture in our work, or the repression of traditional faith, culture, and values in the public square. Not anymore. Thank you. Thank you very much. We embrace the vision of Martin Luther King, where children are not judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. The left is attempting to destroy that beautiful vision and divide Americans by race in the service of political power. By viewing every issue through the lens of race, they want to impose a new segregation, and we must not allow that to happen. Critical race theory, the 1619 Project, and the crusade against American history is toxic propaganda, ideological poison that, if not removed, will dissolve the civic bonds that tie us together, will destroy our country. That is why I recently banned trainings in this prejudiced ideology from the federal government and banned it in the strongest manner possible. The only path to national unity is through our shared identity as Americans. That is why it is so urgent that we finally restore patriotic education to our schools. Under our leadership, the National Endowment for the Humanities has awarded a grant to support the development of a pro-American curriculum that celebrates the truth about our nation's great history. It will encourage our educators to teach our children about the miracle of American history and make plans to honor the 250th anniversary of our founding. Think of that, 250 years. Recently, I also signed an executive order to establish the National Garden of American Heroes, a vast outdoor park that will feature the statues of the greatest Americans who have ever lived. Today, I'm announcing a new name for inclusion. One of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence was a patriot from Delaware. In July of 1776, the Continental Congress was deadlocked during the debate over independence. The delegation from Delaware was divided. Caesar Rodney was called upon to break the tie. 
even though he was suffering from very advanced cancer. He was deathly ill. Rodney rode 80 miles through the night through a severe thunderstorm from Dover to Philadelphia to cast his vote for independence. For nearly a century, a statue of one of Delaware's most beloved citizens stood in Rodney Square, right in the heart of Wilmington. But this past June, Caesar Rodney's statue was ordered removed by the mayor and local politicians as part of a radical purge of America's founding generation. It's not a radical purge of America's founding generation. It's a purge of pieces of stone made after racist men. No one is erasing any names in history books. No one is changing history by taking down a slab of rock. Caesar Rodney had 200 slaves at the time of his death. Just because he voted for a war and therefore our freedom doesn't make him a hero. Bad people can vote for good things. They're not gods. We don't need to worship them. Maybe we shouldn't be making statues of anybody at all. As humans, we're all flawed. We all have iffy pasts. We've all made bad decisions. We need to stop viewing our founders as holy people. I bet a million bucks that Trump has never even heard of this guy until the statue came down. Today, because of an order I signed, if you demolish a statue without permission, you immediately get 10 years in prison. So according to a felonies.org article about tearing down statues, after reading the Declaration of Independence to Washington's troops, New Yorkers and soldiers tore down a statue of George III. The fall of the Berlin Wall could, in a way, be considered tearing down something symbolically in the same way, as well as many statues and memorials to Hitler, Stalin, and such being removed after their defeats. This article also states there are only two federal laws about the destruction of cultural property. One of them has to do with defacing things on battlefields, which is punishable by a whopping 5 to $100. The other protects veterans' memorials from destruction, but that's only a federal offense if the defendant either travels or uses some form of interstate commerce. This charge comes with up to 10 years in prison and a fine. Several states have their own laws about the removal of statues, but most of them are southern states. This also, to me, feels a lot like the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986. For those of you who aren't familiar, this law had an enormous sentencing disparity. Until the Fair Sentencing Act of 2010 under Obama changed this, people in possession of crack cocaine, which was predominantly used by lower-income and black people, had a significantly higher sentencing time than people in possession of powder cocaine, which was predominantly used by upper-income and white people, even though there is very little difference between the two chemically. And the sentence difference? 100 to 1. To me, this 10-year minimum, no matter what, seems like a cruel and unusual punishment for a non-violent, victimless crime. 
It's just another way to incarcerate black people and force them into modern-day slavery, a.k.a. the United States prison system. And there have been no statues demolished for the last four months, incredibly, since the time I signed that act. Really, Don? Are you sure about all that? So if it's been four months, that would mean that no statues have been demolished since May, right? Okay. So here's a list of some statues that have been demolished since May. On June 2nd, protesters toppled statues of Confederate officer Charles Lynn in Birmingham, Alabama. June 10th, a statue of Christopher Columbus was beheaded by protesters in Boston. In Chicago on June 14th, a statue of George Washington was spray-painted and had a white hood placed on his head. In College Station, Texas, June 9th, the statue of Confederate General Lawrence Sullivan Ross was spray-painted with the words racist, BLM, and ACAB, and also had a rainbow wake placed on his head. Cute. On June 11th, in El Paso, Texas, a statue of Don Juan Deonte was vandalized. On June 9th, in Huntsville, Texas, a Confederate monument was vandalized by protesters. June 10th, in Miami, protesters vandalized the statue of Christopher Columbus and Juan Ponce de Leon. June 11th, the statue of Robert E. Lee was torn down by protesters in Montgomery, Alabama. June 3rd, Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, a Confederate cemetery was vandalized. Norfolk, Virginia, June 8th, a Confederate monument was vandalized. Pittsburgh, June 12th, statue of Christopher Columbus was vandalized. June 10th, Portsmouth, Virginia, four Confederate statues were beheaded by protesters. June 13th, Providence, Rhode Island, statue of Christopher Columbus was vandalized. Raleigh, North Carolina, June 10th, Confederate statue vandalized. Richmond, Virginia, June 6th, statue of Confederate General Williams Carter Wickham was toppled. Also in Richmond, June 10th, a statue of Jefferson Davis, the former president of the Confederacy, was torn down. And that same day, a statue of Christopher Columbus was taken down and thrown into a lake. June 2nd, Sharber, Maryland, Robert E. Lee statue was vandalized. And all of that was from this one article, which was written on June 12th of 2020. So that's 12 days worth. And I'm sure that's not even all of them. Donald Trump is lying to you. Joe Biden said nothing as to his home state's history and the fact that it was dismantled and dismembered and a founding father's statue was removed. Today, America will give this founding father, this very brave man, who was so horribly treated, the place of honor he deserves. He was not treated horribly. His statue was removed by government officials via a crane and placed gently into a flatbed truck to be transported to storage. It wasn't even toppled by protesters. What is he talking about? I'm announcing that the statue of Caesar Rodney will be added to the National Guard of American heroes. From Washington to Lincoln, from Jefferson to King, America has been home to some of the most incredible people who have ever lived. With the help of everyone here today, the legacy of 1776 will never be erased. 
Our heroes will never be forgotten. Our youth will be taught to love America with all of their heart and all of their soul. We will save this cherished inheritance for our children, for their children, and for every generation to come. This is a very important day. Thank you all once again for being here. Now I will sign the Constitution Day proclamation. God bless you and God bless America. Thank you very much. In conclusion, this is just more red flags of how Trump is trying to promote nationalism in the United States, and we're getting closer and closer to becoming a fascist country. I pray somebody overwrites this because, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't think that the president should be in charge of education. Everything he says is a lie. Everything he says is inflammatory. I don't even know what this 1776 commission is supposed to promote. I'm interested to see where this goes and what he puts in place with this commission, if anything, if it doesn't get overturned. And once again, he's just using executive orders to do whatever he wants and to shut people up that he doesn't want to hear. And the last story of the week that we'll talk about today are the mass hysterectomies and other egregious potential crimes taking place in an ICE detention center in Georgia. On September 14th of 2020, a 27-page complaint about the Irwin County Detention Center, or ICDC, was sent to the Inspector General, the Officer for Civil Rights and Civil Liberties, the Acting Director of the Atlanta ICE Field Office, and the Warden of the ICDC. The complaint was made on behalf of Don Wooten, who is a licensed practical nurse at the facility through an organization called Project South. They also interviewed dozens of immigrants at ICDC. The document is long, but I really suggest that everyone read it. I did myself, and it didn't take that long to get through. There are so many disturbing things that this complaint mentions that I just don't have time to cover today. It is, of course, in the description. So... There are tons of egregious things that happen to these detainees, including a lack of COVID testing, safety precautions, unsanitary living conditions, mistreatment of employees, and an overall just lack of decent health care in the facility. So I'll start with how the facility is handling COVID and the general lack of medical care. One immigrant tells the story of how two women were not feeling well and then had symptoms of COVID-19, including fatigue, headaches, body pain, and the loss of taste and smell. These women asked nurses to take their temperatures, but the nurse refused until they put in a sick call request. One of the women put in three sick call requests over the span of a week and a half before she was eventually taken to medical. The other waited over two weeks and put in four or five requests. After the fifth request, she gave up on getting tested or even receiving medical care. An immigrant said, We lost hope after they weren't being looked at. We all knew it was up to us to take care of ourselves. Another immigrant claims in the document that a nurse once said that she didn't understand why the two detainees had to get tested. After the two women were brought back to the unit after not being tested or treated, one of them got so sick that she couldn't leave her bed. When others in the unit asked the officer if they could give a food tray to the sick woman, the officer told them that she had to get up and get it herself. Eventually, after they became even more sick, they were transferred to the quarantine unit E4. 
A third woman then became sick with the same symptoms, but was told that she was just experiencing allergies and was not allowed to be tested. In the document, men also discussed their difficulties with testing. At one point, they went on a hunger strike to protest. One man shared that a certain immigrant went on a hunger strike for three weeks and lost a lot of weight. Allegedly, when individuals go on hunger strikes, ICDC shuts off their water source entirely. Ms. Wooten confirmed that this was a common practice and said that at one point an immigrant was so desperate he had to drink out of a toilet. The complaint also talks about how ICDC had purchased two $14,000 rapid testing machines for the facility, bought via taxpayer money, but that no one was trained on how to use it, and so they were just locked up in administrative offices. Later in the document, Ms. Wooten talks about how she and all of the other immigrants only received one mask since the start of quarantine. When Ms. Wooten's broke, she asked her supervisor for a new one, but he claimed that since she was already given one, they didn't have to give her another. Ms. Wooten had to buy one herself with her own money. She also gave an N95 mask to an on-duty officer, but was later reprimanded for doing so and was told by her supervisor, quote, it was not our responsibility to give officers a mask. The complaint also details the fact that the facility doesn't provide enough cleaning measures for the people to be safe inside. From the complaint, quote, she explained that while an employee sprays bleach in the shower, nobody is getting in there scrubbing the showers. Ms. Wooten also stated that she knew that the Lysol being used to disinfect units was watered down and not fully concentrated. Detained immigrants echoed this sentiment. One detained immigrant stated that ICDC's medical unit is the worst one. It's really, really dirty. He also stated that the medical unit sometimes smells and that they, quote, don't clean. In a letter, another immigrant described the medical unit itself as being dirty and with animals like ants and insects, and it only had one bed, toilet, and sink. Other immigrants say that they have no way to sanitize their bunks to ward off the virus, so they use shampoo as soap and their socks as a mop. One immigrant tells Project South that a woman went into quarantine for 22 days and was given no right to commissary, to communicate with her family, no microwave to prepare her food for two days, and she was only allowed to go out for 15 minutes in the morning and 15 minutes in the afternoon, depending on the guard, because many days she was not allowed to leave at all. She was denied water countless times, and her cell was never cleaned while she was in quarantine. The shower she had to use was also so hot that she couldn't correctly wash herself, and she also wasn't given enough personal hygiene supplies for her time in isolation. Quote, The treatment by the guards is humiliating, and since she doesn't speak English, they make fun of her. She came out after 22 days of psychological, physical, and emotional torture. Another woman tells Project South, There are a lot of people here who end up in medical trying to kill themselves because of how crazy it is. If it wasn't for God, I probably would have ended up in the infirmary for suicide. It was just crazy. I can't believe this is the quarantine unit, the cohort unit. The floors are disgusting and nobody cares. Many immigrants say that the nurses don't listen to them when they're complaining about pain. One said, The last two days I didn't sleep, but... I don't fill any medical requests anymore because if I go in there, they're going to isolate me. They're going to give me nothing. 
or they're going to blame me, to yell at me, saying I'm trying to exaggerate. So whenever I'm in pain, I'm in my room. I sleep, I pray to God, and cry. That's the only way I'm trying to survive. Also from the complaint, quote, Another woman was not given her breast cancer medicine for six weeks. In addition, she requested medical care four times and waited for more than two weeks and still did not see a single medical professional. She went on to say, The medical unit is not helpful at all, even if you're dying. For everything, including serious illnesses, they just hand out ibuprofen. Another immigrant reiterated the same problems, saying that he did not receive his HIV medication for three weeks. He made five requests to see a doctor, but still had not seen one in over four weeks. Another detained immigrant explained how he was sick and in pain and submitted multiple sick call requests, but did not receive timely or proper medical care. He said, I'm very sick. I've been complaining. I don't know if they are really waiting to see me dead because sometimes they already see me on the floor laying crying and not once, not twice, several times. All those things sometimes make you hopeless and you know sometimes I feel like dying than to continue. Miss Wooten claims that it's common practice for other nurses to shred these sick requests. She also recounts a story where one woman had complications after surgery and was not being listened to by her nurse. She was oozing green pus out of her belly button, and it wasn't until Miss Wooten said something to the other nurse and confronted that nurse about how she was ignoring the detainee that the immigrant actually got antibiotics that she so desperately needed. Also directly from the complaint, in May 2020, the previous Health Services Administrator, Ms. Cole, died from COVID-19. Many detained immigrants and employees believed that she was exposed to the virus at the facility. Ms. Wooten stated that Ms. Cole explicitly told her and another colleague that she had contracted COVID-19 from ICDC, explaining that she only went to work and home without going anywhere else. However, when Ms. Cole died, the new health service administrator told staff that Ms. Cole contracted COVID-19 from a family barbecue and attributed Ms. Cole getting COVID-19 and dying to Ms. Cole's old age and underlying conditions. At one point, Ms. Wooten herself became ill with COVID-19 symptoms. She got a doctor's note telling her not to return to work until her symptoms subsided. After testing negative and returned to work, Ms. Wooten was demoted from a full-time position to a fill-in without any explanation. Also, though it's not the main complaint in the document, I do want to read a few quotes from the introduction about just how generally disgusting the facility actually is. Quote, Another immigrant stated, This is the dirtiest facility I have ever been in. Everything is dirty. One shower for more than 50 people. One bathroom for all of us. I don't even know how to give more details because it's all nasty, really nasty. Only God is taking care of us here. Another immigrant told Project South, It's been hell. It's dirty. It's nasty. And there is mold. She went on to say the food is so bad that people can't keep it down. She explained that the food is often spoiled, and oftentimes cockroaches and ants from the unit come into the food. Another immigrant stated, The meals are disgusting. There are ants in the food. And lastly, the most horrific complaint is about the mass hysterectomies being performed by one of the doctors. 
Immigrant women often express how they didn't trust the doctor performing these procedures. After talking to other women, one immigrant found at least five women had hysterectomies performed between October and December of 2019. According to the document, she says that the women reacted confused when explaining why they had one done. The woman told Project South that it was as though the women were trying to tell themselves it's going to be okay. She further said, When I met all these women who had had surgeries, I thought this was like an experimental concentration camp. It was like they're experimenting with our bodies. From the document, quote, Ms. Wooten also expressed concern regarding the high numbers of detained immigrant women at the ICDC receiving hysterectomies. She stated that while some women have had heavy menstruation or other severe issues that would require a hysterectomy, everybody's uterus cannot be that bad. Ms. Wooten explained everybody he sees has a hysterectomy, just about everybody. He's even taken out the wrong ovary on a young lady. She was supposed to have her left ovary removed because it had a cyst on the left ovary. He took out the right one. She was so upset. She had to go back to take out the left, and she wound up with a total hysterectomy. She wanted children, so she had to go back home and tell her husband that she couldn't bear kids. She said she was not all the way out under anesthesia and heard the doctor tell the nurses that he took the wrong ovary. Ms. Wooten also stated that the detained woman expressed to her that they didn't fully understand why they had to get a hysterectomy. She said, I've had several inmates tell me that they've been to see the doctor and they've had hysterectomies and they don't know why they went or why they're going. And if the immigrants do understand what they're getting done, some of them a lot of times won't even go. They say they'll wait to get back to their country to go to the doctor. The rate at which hysterectomies have occurred have been a red flag for Ms. Wooten and other nurses at ICDC. Ms. Wooten explained, We've questioned amongst ourselves, like goodness, he's taking everybody's stuff out. That's his specialty. He's the uterus collector. I know that's ugly. Is he collecting these things or something? Everybody he sees, he's taking all their uteruses out or he's taking their tubes out. What in the world? Intertwined with the issues of reported high rates of hysterectomies is the issue of proper informed consent. Regarding the hysterectomies, Ms. Wooten explained, these immigrant women, I don't think they really, totally, all the way understand this is what's going to happen, depending on who explains it to them. Furthermore, another immigrant reported to Project South that, quote, the staff at ICDC and the doctor's office did not properly explain to her what procedure she was going to have done. She reported feeling scared and frustrated, saying it felt like they were trying to mess with my body. When she asked what was being done to her body, she was given three different responses by three different individuals. She stated, I tried to explain to her that something isn't right, that the procedure isn't for me. The nurse responded by getting angry and agitated and began yelling at her. She told Project South that seeing the nurse's nervous and angry response confirmed that something was not right. Since the release of this complaint, 168 members of Congress sent a letter urging DHS Inspector General Joseph Kafari to investigate the allegations of mass hysterectomies. They're demanding an urgent response and a briefing on the status of the investigation by September 25th. That's from NPR. Also from NPR, 
the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, which represent more than 60,000 women's healthcare physicians, also wrote a letter to the Inspector General, calling the complaint's concerns alarming and urging him to investigate them properly. The doctor in question that performed the hysterectomies was later identified as Dr. Mahindra Amin. He's apparently the only doctor that performs hysterectomies for the facility. It's now surfaced that Ahmed has had legal troubles in the past in regards to the medical field. In 2013, Ahmed was at the center of a different whistleblower complaint. This one accused him of Medicare and Medicaid fraud. He and another doctor ended up settling for over half a million dollars, but claimed no liability. Their medical licenses were not affected. So now for a bit of opinion. So most of us know that these claims from the immigrants are anonymous, and we can't 100% be sure how many of these things are actually going on. There's always a possibility that people could be lying, but to be quite frank, I doubt it. There's so much to lose when one chooses to speak out against their place of work and about people providing health care for them. People don't just do that for kicks. Furthermore, abuses of people in prison and in ICE in general have been widely reported and documented. I also think it's incredibly heartbreaking that these individuals are essentially in a prison. Many of them are awaiting hearings, probably, and haven't been convicted of anything. But since many are not American citizens, they can arguably be denied the rights that you and I have. Why do we treat brown people so horribly for wanting to live in the United States? Immigration isn't a violent offense. I honestly don't have any words for how disgusting these claims are. Why any person with a conscience thinks anyone should be treated like this is beyond me. Even if these immigrants were drug dealers, criminals, rapists, a hysterectomy, and a forced sterilization without a woman's consent should not be a punishment. I pray these allegations aren't true, but honestly, this report is damning. It's appalling that this happened in our country. It's appalling that this happened anywhere in the world. And if these claims turn out to be true, I hope everybody in that facility who is complicit to the suffering of others is punished by the full extent of the law. And that was this week in review. Now, on to this week's question of the week. What is the Electoral College? How did it come to be? And is it still relevant today? So, first of all, let's talk about what the Electoral College is and how it works. Then we can get into its origins. The Electoral College is made up of 538 electors in total. A certain number of electors represent each state, and it always totals out to 538 members, though which number of electors go to each state can change. This is dependent on the state's population. Make sure you complete the census. Each state has a certain number of electoral votes, which is equivalent to how many people each state has in Congress. Congress is equal to Senate plus House of Representatives. So each state has two senators, regardless of the population of said state, and then each state gets a number of representatives, proportionate to that state's population. But every state must have at least one. The state currently with the most electoral votes is California at 55, 
and the states with the least electoral votes are Alaska, Delaware, Montana, North and South Dakota, Vermont, and Wyoming at three votes per each state. Washington, D.C. also gets three votes as well. In Florida, we have 29 electoral college votes. Each state, except for Nebraska and Maine, uses a winner-take-all system. So if the majority of the population of, for example, Alabama votes for a Republican, then all nine of Alabama's electoral college votes would go to that Republican candidate. This is why battleground states are so important during an election. Even if the vote is split between 51% versus 49% between two parties, 100% of the electoral college votes would go to the person with the 51% lead. This is because in the United States we have a plurality voting system. If you think this is whack or want to learn more about how other countries vote, I suggest listening to my last podcast's question of the week, why do we have a two-party system in America? And there I talk about different voting systems too. So all of that equates to 435 representatives plus 100 senators plus the three electors from D.C., which equals 538. For somebody to be elected as president, they need to receive a majority of the 538 votes, which is 270. That's the magic number, everybody. 270 electoral votes is required to elect the president. So, who is actually in the Electoral College? Who are the people that are making these very important votes? So, even though the number of the Electoral College is based on the numbers of senators and representatives, neither actual senators or representatives can be members of the Electoral College. People also who have rebelled against the United States, mostly referring to Civil War veterans who fought on the side of the South, cannot be members of the Electoral College either. So basically, it's just a random person that the political parties of each state suggest. Each state elects their representatives the way they want to. First, in the spring and summer before the election, the political parties choose their potential electors. Individuals are often chosen for their dedication to said political party. They can be state-elected officials, state party leaders, or people in the state who have a personal or political affiliation with their party's presidential candidate. Each presidential nominee has their group of electors. When you go and vote for the president, you don't technically vote for the president, you vote for his or her electoral group. These names usually don't appear on the ballots. Then on election day, November 3rd, if a majority of voters in a state vote for party A, then all of party A's electoral college members of that state are selected. For example, in 2020, if the majority of Mississippi decides to elect Donald Trump, then all of the Republican electoral college members of Mississippi would then be selected to go and submit their electoral college votes. Then, on December 14th, the electors of each state meet and cast their ballots for the president and vice president. Multiple copies of these ballots go out. One goes to the vice president, one goes to the secretary of state, the National Archives and Records Administration, and also the presiding judge in the district where those electors meet. This is used as a backup copy. Then in January, the U.S. Congress meets in joint session to count the electoral votes, and the president-elect becomes the president. 
It's important to note that even though 99% of members of the Electoral College do vote with the majority of their state, they do not technically have to do that. Some states do require this, and other states use fines, can disqualify that person, or even replace them if they choose not to vote with the state's majority. No elector has ever been prosecuted for failing to vote with the majority, though several have been disqualified, replaced, and fined. This happened notably, I think, a few times in 2016. Here in Florida, we do require that our electors vote with the majority of the state. It's also important to know, and I talked about this a little bit earlier, that you, unless you're a member of the Electoral College, do not technically vote for president. You vote for the members of the Electoral College who, in turn, vote for the president. So now, let's talk about why we even have the Electoral College in the first place. The Electoral College was created during the Constitutional Convention of 1787 in Philadelphia. Though the convention was intended to revise the Articles of the Confederation, many delegates, including most notably James Madison and Alexander Hamilton, wanted to create a new government rather than fixing the existing one. The result of the convention was the creation of the Constitution and also the selection of George Washington to preside over the convention. And then also, as we know, the convention also led to the Electoral College. At this time, no other country had directly elected its chief executives, so Americans and the delegates at this uh, constitutional convention were really just trying to make up something so that way everybody would be happy and it would be fair and not like England. A lot of these delegates had a really deep-seated mistrust of executive power and then worried about America becoming like England. There were two main camps that debated on how our leaders should be elected. The first group believed that Congress shouldn't have anything to do with picking the president due to potential corruption. The second group wanted a popular vote, but they acknowledged that most 18th century voters didn't have the means to be fully informed. There was also worry that a democratic mob could lead the country instead of officials, and that a populist president could have too much power. So the delegates all decided on a deal. States would appoint independent electors, and the electors would then cast the actual ballots for the presidency. Another issue that would affect this voting system was slavery. According to History.com, in 1787, roughly 40% of the people living in the southern states were black slaves. James Madison from Virginia, where slaves made up 60% of the population, knew that either a direct presidential election or one where electors were divvied up based only on the free white residents would not benefit the South. This then led to the Three-Fifths Compromise in which black slaves would be counted as three-fifths of a person for the purpose of allocating representatives and for federal taxes, but they weren't actually people because they couldn't vote. So, in summary, the Electoral College was created so that way we could elect a leader without corruption being involved, and because not all voters would be informed to have enough of a majority rule system, and then lastly, so smaller states could have an equal say as the larger states and then, therefore, black people could count as people in the South, but just not vote. So, do we still need the Electoral College today? The Electoral College has gotten a lot of flack since the 2000 Bush-Gore election, and then even more since the 2016 Clinton-Trump elections. 
In 2000, Al Gore won the popular election by about 540,000 votes, but he only received 266 electoral votes compared to Bush's 271, and then Bush became the president. In 2016, Hillary Clinton won the popular election by just under a 3 million vote advantage, but only received 227 electoral college votes compared to Trump's 304. Again, they need 270 to win. Some pros of the Electoral College are that it incentivizes candidates to campaign in more areas rather than just places where they know they'll win. So far in our history, you know, it's it's September, this might change in the next month, but we have had a smooth transition of power from each president to the following president. Nobody's objected of the results and we haven't really had any giant civil discourse when power has been transitioned. And then lastly, there's always certainty to the outcome of elections. Since citizens don't actually vote on the president, just the electoral college, there is less pressure to count and then recount individual ballots since we only need to rely on the majority. Some cons of the electoral system are that many people believe that a popular vote would be more appropriate today. After all, one of the reasons the Founding Fathers wanted an electoral college in the first place was because the average rural citizen would not be informed. Since the time of the Constitution, both newspapers, news outlets, and internet have allowed for most people to have access to information needed to make an informed decision. Technically, as we mentioned earlier, the Electoral College can in fact ignore the will of the people, though this really isn't common. It is something that a lot of citizens are concerned about being potentially abused. And then also presidential candidates tend to focus only on swing states and states with the large electoral vote. Even though the smaller states get more of a say with the Electoral College, I feel like they're still often ignored by presidential nominees. And then my last point with this is that individuals in smaller states technically have more of a voter power than individuals in more populated states. This is both a pro and a con depending on how you look at it and who you are. If you were in a smaller populated state like Wyoming, you would have more of a say in the presidential election than a citizen of California. Some argue that this allows Wyoming to not be overlooked, but others argue that policies should benefit the majority of people, even if the majority of those folks share the same demographic. So now, on to some opinions. Personally, I have a better understanding now of the Electoral College after doing all this research than I did before. For one, the transition of presidents in our country. Again, we'll see how this works in November, and I'm not super sure about how the Electoral College plays into the transition of power, but it does, and it's worked so far. Also, to me, most of the pros seem outdated. I'm not sure if the Electoral College should be completely disbanded, but I definitely think that we need some revisions. I also agree with the idea of a popular vote. Even if we choose to use representatives to cast our ballots officially for president, I think that our current winner-takes-all system is more problematic than it is good. Maybe we should lean more towards what Nebraska and Maine do and still have electoral college people, but instead of all of the votes of one state going to one representative, 
we divide up each state's electoral college votes based on the portion of people that voted for each president. Furthermore, and this is kind of my biggest qualm, I don't believe that the Electoral College should be what holds presidential nominees accountable for where they campaign. I also think it would be more appropriate if maybe each political party came up with a rule or maybe we came up with a law in general, something that holds presidential nominees more accountable. Maybe a rule like that each candidate has to campaign in every state, or maybe an equal amount of red and blue states, or maybe... They have to campaign in at least one state of each population bracket. In conclusion, I guess I support getting rid of the Electoral College, but if we do, I definitely acknowledge that we need something else in place to protect citizens, keep peace during presidential transitions, and to encourage politicians to campaign in various states. And those are my hot takes on the Electoral College. You know where I stand. You now maybe know a few more things than you did before. And I want to know what you think. Do you want the Electoral College to be removed or potentially revised? Do you like how it is? Did you learn something new or maybe have a more in-depth question? Feel free to comment on the YouTube recording of this podcast. Also, if you have a suggestion for future question of the week, feel free to leave it in the comments as well. As always, the links to my sources and those socials are in the description. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.